O oh God, ours the cross, the grave, the skies. We sing the story, but do we believe the story, really? Open our minds and our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Be seated, please. Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian writer, in his book, A Confession, struggled with the meaning of life in the face of death. Who hasn't? Hmm? Let me put Tolstoy's words on the screen for you. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? When I was a freshman in college, two young co-eds coming back from town lost control of their little sports car on a rain-slicking curve not far from our campus, and both were killed. One of the girls sat behind me in a class I was taking that semester. I don't know why, but those two deaths unlike any other deaths I had experienced, just threw me into what I suppose today we would call an existential crisis. I mean, I am lying to 17 years old, lying that night in my dormitory bed, staring at the ceiling, gripped with this numinous fear of death, uncertain of life, my, my purpose in life. It was awful. I suppose all of us at some point, whether you're a 17-year-old or 50 like Tolstoy, I suppose all of us at some point have to come to that existential crisis where we wrestle to the core of our beings with life in the face of death. I mean, it's the one inevitability, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, it's the one inevitability we all face. We will die. So this morning, I want to invite you, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, to consider an ancient creed just for a moment. Ponder this creed with me. New Testament scholars believe that this creed was actually composed between two to eight years after the resurrection of Christ. In fact, they, some believe that Paul, at the moment of his conversion in Damascus, learned the creed, or perhaps three years later when he went to Jerusalem. The creed is found in your Bible. Open your Bible to the New Testament, the, the little book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, you didn't bring a Bible. You need to track this creed. Perhaps the oldest piece of infant Christianity. 1 Corinthians 15, grab the pew Bible. It'll be page 775. 775 in your pew Bible. I'm going to be in the new, the new International Version today. So this is 1 Corinthians 15. Let's pick it up in verse 3. For what I received, all right? So somebody's given this to him. This is ancient. This is old. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that, verse 4, He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and, verse 5, that He appeared to Kephas, and then to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then, verse 7, He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. The New Testament scholar Joachim Yetimius describes this creed, and I'm quoting now, as the earliest tradition of all in the New Testament. In fact, the Jewish, and there are not many of these, the Jewish New Testament scholar, Pinchas Lapide, says, evidence in the support of this creed is so strong, and I quote again, that it may be considered as a statement of eyewitnesses. The investigative journalist named Lee Strobel, who himself grew up as an atheist, met Christ, converted to Christianity. In his book, The Case for Christ, he does the arithmetic on these 500 witnesses. He, he says, look, without question, the amount of testimony and corroboration of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances is staggering. He says, let's put it in perspective. If you took all 500 of those witnesses and you gave them only 15 minutes in a court of law and you took their testimony without break, all 500 in a row, you would start at Monday breakfast and you would continue all the way till dinner on Friday. He writes, after listening to 129 straight hours of eyewitness testimony, who could possibly walk away unconvinced?" End quote. That's Paul's point, ladies and gentlemen. Paul is saying, listen, I'm going to give you the names of eyewitnesses. I'm going to give you James, his stepbrother. I'm going to give you Kephas, Aramaic for Peter. I'm going to give you 500 men and women who saw him. I will present my own testimony. I saw him in person. There's no question, ladies and gentlemen, that in the early Christian church, the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is rock solid. In fact, Paul is essentially saying right here, he's saying, hey, listen, guys, look, Pax Romana, we have peace in the empire. Travel now in the Mediterranean, relatively easy and safe. You go, I've given you the names, you interview them for yourself, you check it out. That's how confident Paul is. Timothy Keller in his book, The Reason for God, I'll put Keller's words on the screen here. Paul was inviting anyone who doubted that Jesus had appeared to people after his death to go and talk to the eyewitnesses if they wished. Paul could not have made such a challenge if those eyewitnesses did not exist. Let's read the first lines of that creed again. What is this? Verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Of the, of the gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection, Timothy Keller makes such a significant point, I want to pass it along to you as well. Keller says, hey, look, look. The, the, the resurrection narratives in the New Testament are too problematic to be fabrications. You, could, you can't make this kind of stuff up. Watch this. He says, take, for example, the first eyewitnesses were all women. Let's put uh, Keller's words on the screen. 
Women's low social status meant that their Palestine in Pal uh, that their testimony rather in Palestine was not admissible evidence in court. You could not bring a woman in to testify. She, she doesn't count. Keep reading. There was no possible advantage to the church to recount that all the first witnesses were women. It could only have undermined the credibility of the testimony. The only possible explanation for why women were depicted as meeting Jesus first is if they really had. Amazing thought. The early Christian proclaimers could not have changed the story. There were too many living eyewitnesses. They had to tell it like it was. By the way, there's, there's another little uh, 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 thought here. What's amazing with the New Testament story is that you have both the empty tomb and the physical sightings. You have the both. If we had only the empty tomb, we'd say, hey, his followers stole the body. It's not a big deal. If we had only the sightings, we'd say, hey, through the history of time, people have imagined seeing the deceased. So what's, what's, to, what's new there? But N.T. Wright, the New Testament, British New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright says it is the bothness of the empty tomb and the sightings together that makes such a significant point. In his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, N.T. Wright put it on the screen here, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have invented it. No matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they had poured over the Scriptures, to suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. Kind of in your face. If you're doing history, you're a skeptic, you're doing history, look at the history you're doing. Don't come up with this little, oh, this is all a bit of a fabrication. Can't be. Let's read it again, verse 3. For what I received, the Apostle Paul writing, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Drop down to verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. You have, sister, bro, you have no Savior. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, the dead, are lost. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. The Greek literally reads, we are more wretched than all men. If what we see is all we get, then how utterly wretched and sad our lots. That's his point. How did Tolstoy put it? Put Tolstoy's words back up on the screen. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, 
was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man, every woman, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was this, what will come of what I am doing today or I shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? The question can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy, end quote? I mean, what's the point at all if death is the end of it all? What's the point of life if it ends forever in death? It's humanity's most in insistent existential question. Because of death, come on now listen, because of death, why life? Why life? Enter now the secret of the seed. Brand new miniseries, five in a row, right here. Take us to the end of this semester in the year. The secret of the seed. You see, what Paul's been doing is he's been establishing the fact of the past. He's just done that. Now he suddenly pivots to the promise of the future. You say, Dwight, well, I, I don't say anything about seeds. Oh, brother, keep reading. Look at this, verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And with that single line, Paul plunges all of us into this agrarian world of farmers and farming and seeds and grain. Because you see, in, in, in Palestine, they had two harvests. The harvests were in the spring. No harvest in the summer. Are you kidding? It's too hot and baked. You can't harvest in the summer. So they have an early harvest. It would be barley. They have a late harvest in the spring. That would be wheat. Paul, by the inclusion of that one word, suddenly reminds us that in the story of the mighty deliverance of the children of Israel from, from Egypt, God, the, their creator, said, I need to be remembered by you not only as your creator, but also your redeemer and your provider. Moses, I need you to tell the children of Israel in their sacred calendar, I need two holy days and I need them back to back. I need them this close. The first holy day, the Passover. That dramatic, that dramatic remembering. When Papa stepped outside the doorpost and Junior and Sissy followed him, Daddy, what are you going to do as he dipped that hyssop branch into the warm and uncoagulated blood of that slain lamb and begins to paint the doorpost of that humble little abode in Egypt? The whole family inside, under the blood, as the destroying angel in the middle of the night swoops over Egypt. The Passover. And by the way, the Passover was to be celebrated on the 14th day of Abib, or, that, or the month Nisan. It would be, it'd be around the end of, um, end of March, 1st of April. By the way, the, our Jewish friends just celebrated the Passover this week. Okay? So, why the Passover? To commemorate the coming Lamb of God whose own blood would be a sacrifice for the sins of this world. But God says, hey, listen, I need two holidays, and I need those two sacred days this close. On the 14th of Nisan, the Passover, and then two days later, on the 16th of Abib or Nisan, I want the worshipers to come, these agrarian worshipers, I want them to come clutching in their hands the first shoots from the soon-to-come barley harvest. I want them to bring the first shoots Bring them to the priest at the sanctuary. Hand them over to him. He will take those first sheaves, lift them. He would lift them into the air 
as a pledge that even as these have grown, there will one day come a mighty harvest to follow the first fruits. As a pledge, he will lift them to the God of heaven, thanking him for the, for the promise of a harvest yet to come. Passover was celebrated on Nisan 14. First fruits were celebrated on Nisan 16. I want you to note that A.D. 31, the month of Nisan in A.D. 31, with incredible supernatural precision, matches this ancient twosome of holy days. Let's put it on the screen. In A.D. 31, this is the weekend of Christ's crucifixion. Passover was on Nisan 14. What's happening on Passover? That's when the Lamb of God is slain on Calvary for the sins of the world. What do we call that day today? Come on, what do we call it today? Call it out. We call that Good Friday. Nisan 15 was the seventh day Sabbath. That's when the Creator honored His day given to the human race and also rested on the Sabbath. What do we call that day today? We call it Saturday. So you have Friday, you have Saturday. And then Nisan 16, when the first fruits are born, what happens? That's that moment when God blows the gates off of that sepulcher outside of Jerusalem and the Son of God strides, strides forth. I am the resurrection and the life. Yeah. What do we call that day today? Sunday. Yeah. 1,500 years before God needed that little weekend locked in to predictive Scripture. 1,500 years in advance, he says, this is the way we're going to do it. And it matched perfectly with the Passion Weekend. Wow. Verse 20, how's it go? Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Here it is, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Why is he called the first fruits? Because in the resurrection of Christ, God lays down the divine promise that even as this first shoot of grain has burst the ground, even so one day there will be a massive global harvest of all the friends of God who sleep in the dust of the earth. That's why he's the first fruits. The harvest is coming. The harvest is coming. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 21, for since death came through a man. By whom did death come to us? What was the name of that man? It's Adam. You got it. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. We know his name. Paul confirms, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all would be made alive, verse 23, but each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. How many times have we together mingled our tears at that graveside how many times have we clung to this promise? And when he comes, those who belong to him, how many times? Some years ago, some of you might remember this, the Village Fathers here in Bering Springs decided to erect a traffic sign outside of Rose Hill Cemetery, the only cemetery we have in town, informing all who enter that the road goes no further. And so they placed a giant ref yellow reflective sign that read, 
dead end. <laughs> when the villagers finally figured out what had happened, the telephone was ringing off the hook. I mean, upset. Why would you put dead end in front of a cemetery, please? <laughs> so the village council reconvened. They said, we got to change it. We got to change it. No more dead end. So they voted another sign, a bright yellow reflective sign. I went there yesterday just to make sure the sign is still standing, and here it is. <laughs> I took that picture yesterday. I don't know about you, but for me, you know, dead end, no outlet, you really haven't helped the situation. <laughs> oh, my. But what is clear here in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is the promise that one day there will be a glorious outlet in every cemetery on the face of this planet. There will be an outlet. There will be an outlet one day. One day. One day. Keep reading. Look at Paul, verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Verse 52, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. If you studied the Sabbath school lesson this week on creation, you read this one. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we, and we will be changed. Verse 53, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Mm. Verse 55, where, O death, is your victory now? Where, O death, is your sting? Verse 57, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that resurrection moment? Great controversy, Kim. I'm going to put this phenomenal description on the screen for you. Listen, amid, this is at the return of Christ, the cloud of fire, and Jesus is sitting on that cloud. Amid the reeling of the earth, the flashing of lightning, and the roar of thunder, the voice of the Son of God calls forth the sleeping saints. He looks upon the graves of the righteous, then raising his hands to heaven, he cries, Awake, 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 you who sleep in the dust, and arise. And then, throughout the length and breadth of the earth, the dead shall hear that voice, and they that hear shall live, and the whole earth shall ring. I love this line. The whole earth shall ring with the tread of the exceeding great army of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. From the prison house of death, they come. Our wives, they come. Our husbands, they come. Our babies, they come. Our little sons and daughters, they come. The dearest friends we've ever had, they come. From that prison house, they come. Our grandparents, they come. Our parents, they come. From the prison house of death, they come, clothed with immortal glory, crying, Oh, death! Where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And the living righteous and the risen saints, 
Isn't this incredible? The living righteous and the risen saints unite their voices in a long, glad shout of victory. Now, I've gone to sports stadiums where you have 40,000, 50,000 fans there, and when those fans all yell at the same time, I, it's electric. You got goosebumps. Can you imagine an entire planet of God's friends shouting at the same time? You can hear the roar of a stadium, can't you? Magnify it, magnify it, magnify it. Wow. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. The secret of the seed. You just read it. This is the secret of the seed. You say, Dwight, what's the secret? The secret is simple. In the secret of the seed is the promise of the harvest. That's it. In the secret of the seed is the promise of the harvest. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the first fruits, and one day soon, the beloved family and friend, friends of ours, the harvest. In the secret of the seed is the promise of the harvest. And in the promise of the harvest, hallelujah, there is hope. Hope. Christ the first fruits. Mm -hmm. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. So here's my question this first Sabbath of spring. Do you belong to him? Do you? I want to end with two appeals, an appeal to two different groups on this Resurrection Sabbath. Group number one, if you've never come to Jesus. You say, oh, well, I, I would be in the category unbeliever. You know what? I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're watching right now, listening. I want to just think with you out loud. In fact, would you do this? There's, there's a little connect card that, on this uh, Resurrection Sabbath. It's, it's inside the worship bulletin. Just pull it out. I want, to, I want to make an appeal to two different groups this morning. This little connect card will help. And so if you'll pull it out, it's in your, it's in your bulletin. And uh, guests, we're delighted to have you. We invite the guests and the, the uh, regular worshipers. Just take a moment to fill... And we'll receive in just, a, just a, three moments. But take a moment to fill out the demographic information here, your name. There's going to be an opportunity to get some material, so you're, put, put, put your uh, email address. Make sure it's legible. Put your email address on. That'll be very helpful. So this, this front, you put as much or as little as you wish. It's the other side that I want to invite your attention to focus on. And this is called the next step side. Okay, so I want to make two appeals right now, two groups who are here. I want to make an appeal to those of you who has, have, yeah, you know, I just, I just don't believe. I just, I just, it just doesn't work for me. I want to talk to you for a second. This is kind of a crazy notion. I understand this. But you have to admit, it's compelling and it's a, it's a bit exhilarating. I mean, what if this were true? What if this, this story born by eyewitnesses Christianity is an eyewitness religion. It's an eyewitness religion. What if the story were true? Blaise Pascal, have you heard of him? He's this, this great French mathematician, became a, a, a Christian philosopher, just a deep believer. Blaise Pascal uh, wrote this line once. I like it. I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. What's he talking about? 
He's saying, listen, if you really believe, sir, what you just said, would you be willing to die, madam, for that belief? The witnesses who say, cut my throat, I'm not changing my belief. Pascal says, you know what? I take that, I take that witness very seriously. That's what you have here. Every one of the apostles, every one of the 500, who knows? Throats cut. I take seriously a witness from one whose throat will be cut for that witness. So here's, here's the deal. If you said, oh, I'm just not into this Jesus thing today, why not? I want to invite you to put that, put that notion on hold for a moment and do this. Ask. You say, oh, if there's somebody out there, if you're there, God, would you plant in me a seed of belief? Ask him to plant a seed of belief. You know, Pascal is the one who came up with Pascal's, uh, Pascal's wager. The wager is a very simple one, but it's very logical. Pascal said this. He said, look, you wanna, my, my encouragement to you would be to, to bet, to bet that Christ lives. Because here's why. If Christ doesn't live, but you bet your life that he does live, and he doesn't live, you haven't lost anything. But if Christ does live, and you bet your life on it, you've, you've got it all. And you say, no, I'm going to bet he doesn't exist. Well, if Christ doesn't exist, and you bet he doesn't exist, you're okay. But if you bet he doesn't exist, and it turns out he does exist, you have lost everything in this universe. So, my friend, Pascal, bet that he lives. Pascal's wager. That's what I'd like to invite you to do. You don't believe? I'd like to invite you to go. If there's a God out there, I ask that you plant a seed of belief in my mind, in my heart. Plant it wherever you want. I, if you do exist, plant that seed and I'll believe. My friend, if you will, if you will pray that prayer, it'll feel like you're praying to emptiness. But if you pray that prayer and mean that prayer, you're willing to take the wager. You just wait. You just wait. So, on the back side of this little card, these are called the next steps. Here's number one. This is the one I wish you would put. If you don't believe right now, would you put a check mark right here? Here's what I'm appealing for you to do. Put a check mark for the first time I choose the risen Christ to be my Savior and Lord. Put a check mark there. And within 48 hours, we will send you a packet of material. You, in your own quiet, anonymous leisure, can review the material. Nobody will come to where you are. If you put a check mark there within 48 hours, we'll send it to you. I'm appealing to you. Give yourself a chance. I said there are two groups I want to appeal to today on this Resurrection Sabbath. The other group are those who have recommitted again and again and again to this belief in the risen Christ. I got a letter from one of our Canadian friends, maybe a viewer, I don't know. The letter is, the, the, the writer has a name that can be male or female, masterfully written. I don't know if it's young, I don't know if it's aged, in between, you can't tell. But the writer sent the letter to me and said, I want you to think about something. And I've been brooding over that letter. I have it right here, I'm not going to read it to you. I've been brooding over that letter all this week. The writer says, hey, listen. 
Before Jesus comes, the good news about Jesus will go to the whole world, true or false? It's true. So, in order for the good news to go to the whole world, God is going to have to pour out a special measure of Himself, the, the Spirit of Jesus. Isn't that right? Yeah, so far, so good. And in order to have a special outpouring in my heart, your heart, we're going we're gonna to have to ask for it. Well, so far, so yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, we ask for it. You know what we need to be asking for, this writer, to me? You know what we need to be asking for? We need to ask God to pour into our hearts the seed of a deeper love for Him. We need to ask God, God, grow my love for you. He says, I wager that if a critical mass of the friends of Jesus on this planet would pray, God, fill me with a deeper love for you, God would begin to do something he has not been able to do since because he's not sure. Do they love the world or do they really love me? He's not sure. He will answer the prayer of every heart that says, pour yourself into me that I might be overflowing with a love for you. So here's the deal. This little gospel creed, Jesus died for sinners, the same writer is quoting the creed over here in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul is saying, hey, listen, 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 people. Calvary, that empty tomb, Calvary, that is the... That is the pinnacle of God's outpouring of His love. That's the, that's, the, that's the peak. Ask. So here's my invitation. Would you be willing to join me as we journey into this new season in asking God to pour into us a deeper love of Him than ever before? I say, Dwight, it's so simple. Maybe it is that simple. Box number two, would you put a check mark? You've, you've recommitted again and again. I renew my choice for the risen Christ to be my Savior and my Lord. Would you put a check mark there? Join me. Let's turn our cards in just a second. Join me in that recommitment. Oh, and there's a third box. In gratitude for Christ as my first fruits, I will read the four gospel accounts of his resurrection tomorrow morning. Why not? Tomorrow morning when you get up. Before you do anything else, read the four, the four accounts of the resurrection. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See, just, just, just revel in that revelation. I've taken this moment just because if your heart is open to a seed planted in your mind from the God of the universe, a seed of belief, and you're willing to open your heart to that, I wish you'd do it today, right now. Just put it down. You say, do I have something special about it? No, you just put it down. It's just, it's just, right, this is my prayer. I wish. You want to renew? Check that second box. Shall we dedicate these decisions? Absolutely. I want to pray with you right now. Oh, God. Never believed before have tried to believe for a long time, just a new believer wherever we are in this journey. The secret of the seed, please. If you are who you are, would you plant the seed 
of your love deep in our minds and our hearts. Don't let us be the same after this hour with you. Take our decisions, seal them. And now receive our morning tithes and offerings. The little we have, we cheerfully return to you. In the name of Jesus, our risen Savior, amen. I wanted to take an extra moment to let you know how grateful I am you joined us today. I hear from viewers and listeners like you all across this nation and literally around the world, and I'm thankful. Because it's through the generosity of the members of this congregation and people like you that we're able to bring you this program. So if what we share today has touched your heart, I'd like to invite you to become a financial partner with us. Just give us a call. Toll-free number 877, the two words, His Will. 877, His Will. Or if you'd rather, go to our website, www.pmchurch.tv. Either way, your generosity will bless a new generation in cyberspace all over this planet. So thank you. Thank you very much for your partnership.